Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Understanding Revelation. All right, well, we are about, about to embark on an awesome journey called Revelation. And as I keep saying, we're going to start that verse-by-verse study next week. But as we begin to prepare for that study, I want you to prepare yourself to receive a blessing. And you might say, what do you mean a blessing? Well, did you know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for those who will hear and heed the words of this prophecy? In fact, check it out up on your screen, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and what's the word? Are those who hear and who keep, or heed, don't leave that part out, (laughs) who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, did you notice in that verse that there is a blessing promised to both me as the pastor and also for you as the parishioners. You see, in 2017, I'm gonna be blessed because I have the distinct honor and privilege to read aloud and explain the words of this amazing book. But you as the parishioners, well, you can also prepare for a blessing because you are gonna hear and I hope and pray heed the words of Jesus to John. So my question for you this morning is this. Are you ready to be blessed? And so what does the word mean? Well, the original word in the Greek simply means happy. And so you can fully expect in 2017 to receive a certain measure of happiness as we make our way verse by verse through the 22 chapters that Jesus gave to John 2,000 years ago. That's the promise. And I wanna challenge you not to miss out on the blessing. I wanna challenge you that unless you're sick or unless you're out of town, not to miss any Sundays as we take probably over eight months to go through these 22 chapters. Don't miss a single Sunday because you don't wanna miss the blessing that's promised in Revelation chapter one, verse three. So what's on the agenda for today? Well, today the agenda is I'm gonna share with you some foundational principles to help you and I prepare for this awesome study. uh, Today's message, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share three principles that are essential if we're really going to rightly divide the word of truth, if we're really gonna correctly understand the words that Jesus gave to John. And so if you're taking notes, here's your first point. If, it's a big if, if we're gonna correctly understand Revelation, then number one, we should use or accept the literal, otherwise known as the grammatical, historical method of interpretation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my encouragement to you. I, thought, I think I just prayed about it. My encouragement to you is don't let your Christian experience only be an emotional experience. There's nothing wrong with emotion, right? God made us emotional beings, and we get emotional from time to time, and praise the Lord, that's that's awesome. But how many of you know God also gave us a mind? But so many Christians, what they do when they go to church is they check their minds at the door just for some emotional experience. No, God made us mind, will, and emotions. He gave us, he made us a three-part being. And so today is gonna be a very uh, cerebral, if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. Today, it's about engaging your minds so that you can learn these foundational principles that'll prepare you to correctly understand the book of Revelation. And so now, we're getting into the topic of hermeneutics, a very important study. Hermeneutics is that branch of learning that has to do with the proper interpretation of the scriptures. When a, a young man goes to seminary and he takes homiletics, he learns how to properly preach. When he goes to his next class, hermeneutics, he learns how to properly interpret the word of God. So there's two primary methods that are used when interpreting the scripture. One is good, one's not so good. 
We're gonna start with the not-so-good method of interpretation, and if you're taking notes, it's called the allegorical method. So what is the allegorical method of interpretation of the scriptures? Which, by the way, many, many, many Christians use when it comes to Revelation. This is why I'm bringing this up this morning. The allegorical method is that method of interpreting a literary text that regards the literal sense, in other words, the plain meaning of the author, as a vehicle for a secondary, more quote-unquote spiritual and more profound sense. So when somebody uses the allegorical method of interpretation to interpret whether it's Revelation or any book of the Bible, for them, the literal sense, the plain meaning of the biblical author is not good enough. No, they use the literal sense as a vehicle for a secondary, more spiritual, more profound sense. In other words, and I'm just gonna cut to the chase this morning. In other words, here's what they do. They take the intended meaning of the biblical author and they replace it with their own made-up ideas. It's called spiritualizing the text, and it's very dangerous. For example, you don't have to turn there. I'm gonna read a couple verses out of Revelation 7, the ceiling of the 144,000. Ever heard of the 144,000? All right, check this out. Um, John uh, says in Revelation 7, uh, verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so there you have the text. But then here comes the Jehovah Witnesses. And the Jehovah Witnesses read Revelation chapter seven, and here's their, their thinking. Well, I know that the literal interpretation is that 144,000 Jewish men are gonna be sealed in their foreheads, but we believe that the plain, literal sense, listen, is just a vehicle for a more spiritual, profound sense. And so we believe that the 144,000, listen, this is doctrine of the Jehovah Witnesses, the ones who keep knocking on your door every Saturday. We believe that the 144,000 are 144,000 members of the Jehovah Witness denomination, an elite group who will live forever as spirits in heaven. You see how dangerous the allegorical method of interpretation is. the, the, The plain sense is not good enough. We wanna come up with a secondary, more spiritual, more profound sense, not profound at all especially after they had more Jehovah Witnesses than 144,000. And so what, what did they do? Well, um, they still hold to the fact that 144,000 will be an elite group that live as spirits in heaven, and the rest of the Jehovah Witnesses who've been baptized as Jehovah Witnesses, because you can't go to the kingdom of God unless you've been baptized as a Jehovah Witness. We're all in trouble, by the way. But the rest of them, they earn their salvation by knocking on your door every Saturday. Why do you think they're so relentless every week? And so the allegorical method of interpretation is very dangerous, listen, because using the allegorical method, we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. And that's why for 12 and a half years of teaching and preaching here at Calvary Port St. Lucie, I've always stuck with um, the, the, the late theologian David L. Cooper, uh, his golden rule of interpretation. It's a strong, essential hermeneutical principle. And, that, and here, here's the paraphrase of it. You've, you've heard me say this before. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so that's how we approach the Bible. And that's how we approach the book of the Bible called Revelation. And that leads us to the correct method of interpretation. It's called the literal method. What is the literal method? It's that method that gives to each word the exact basic meaning it would have in normal, ordinary, customary usage. The meaning is to be determined by both grammatical and historical considerations. In other words, when we use the literal method of interpretation, we don't look for a secondary, more profound, more spiritual sense. When we use the literal method of interpretation, when we come to the Bible, we don't look for deeper, hidden truths behind the intended meaning of the author. No, what do we do? The same thing you do when you read a letter or an email. You just look for the plain, customary, normal um, interpretation of every word that's used in language. So when you take that approach, you find out that the 144,000 in Revelation 7 has nothing to do with how many Jehovah Witnesses are gonna make it to heaven. It has everything to do with 144,000 literal Jewish men who will be sealed during the tribulation, who will be sold out servants of God in the last seven years of history as we know it. That is the plain, ordinary, normal, customary usage of John's words. Does this make sense to you guys? And so if I were to write a love letter to my wife, Stacy, I hope she would not try to interpret the love letter in an allegorical way. I hope she wouldn't look for some deeper hidden meaning behind my plain words. And so let's say I write, I write her a letter and she gets it and she opens it up and says, you know, dear Stacy, I love you so much. You are such an amazing woman. And she stops and thinks, I wonder what he means by amazing. Does he mean wonderful and astonishing? Or is there a secondary, more profound spiritual sense to this? Is there a hidden meaning that he wants me to find? And she continues to read the letter. I'm so grateful that, that 30 years ago, the Lord brought you into my life and we went on our first date. And she stops right there and she, she thinks, I wonder if he means 30 literal years or is 30 years just a, an undetermined lengthy period of time? Hey, when you get a letter or an email, what method of interpretation do you, do you use? Literal or allegorical? Help me out. So why when we come to the scriptures do we look for deeper hidden secondary meanings in the text? Let me tell you something, the devil is a genius. And these people who use the allegorical method looking for a deeper hidden meaning think they're so elite and think they're so super spiritual, but really they're deviating, deviating from the plain word of God. Now I will grant you that in Revelation, John used many symbolic words and phrases. How many of you have read Revelation? Let me just see your hand. The symbols and figures of speech are everywhere, right? I mean, you got a woman clothed with the sun with the moon at her feet. And now you got a, a, a dragon coming out of the sea, and then you got a beast, uh, a beast coming out of the sea with, with 10 horns and seven heads, and, and all these figures of speech. And so when we see symbolic words and phrases, please listen, we should still use the literal method of interpretation. Because the literal method of interpretation tells us it doesn't deny figures of speech or symbolic words. The literal method of interpretation tells us that behind the symbolic word and behind the figure of speech, there is a literal truth that God wants us to understand. Revelation 13.1, for example, says this. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns. Okay, and so using the literal method of interpretation is not saying that we believe that in the last days a Godzilla-like creature is gonna come out of the Atlantic Ocean with 10 horns and take over the world. It's not what it means at all. 
What does it mean? It means that behind the symbolic word beast and the symbolic phrase 10 horns, there's a literal truth that God wants us to grasp. If we use the allegorical method, then I could say, well, I think the beast means this. And you could say, well, I think the beast means that. And my interpretation is just as good as your interpretation. Careful. This is one of the, um, the things that Pastor Jacob looks for in life groups. Life groups are awesome. Life groups are our DNA. But when you have eight to 12 people sitting in a circle reading a text and eight to 12 people say, well, this is my interpretation. Well, this is my interpretation. Well, well this is my interpretation. Careful. Here's a, 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 an important hermeneutical principle. For every passage of the Bible, there's one interpretation and many applications. And so the question is, when you're sitting around your life group, what's your interpretation of this verse? Don't do that. The question is, you got a leader who spent some time studying and has found out what the interpretation is, and then the question around the, around the group is, how can we apply this to our lives? Does this make sense to you guys? And so it's so very important that we understand that there's not a lot of interpretations. There's one interpretation for every passage, but many, many applications. So how do we find the author's intended meaning when it comes to figures of speech and symbolic words in Revelation? Here's how. By the way, that was a very important question. So in case you're thinking about lunch right now, I'm gonna ask the question again because I really want you to engage your mind and get these foundational truths so we correctly interpret the word of God starting next week, okay? So here's the question again. When we come to a symbolic word or phrase or a figure of speech in Revelation, how do we know the intended meaning of the author behind that symbolic word or that figure of speech? Here's how we do it. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so you, you know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do three things. The first thing I'm gonna do when I come to a symbolic word or phrase is I'm going to leave that verse in its context and I'm gonna look at the verses before that symbolic word and I'm gonna look at the verses after that symbolic word and I'm gonna interpret that word in its context. So important. Somebody just, somebody just told me in between services that they went to a church um, on Christmas and the lady came up and she talked about her interpretation of God and John 1.14 and how she doesn't see God as someone sitting on a throne with a scepter, but this is, in her words, my interpretation. Hey, if I ever start talking like that, do me a favor, call my board of directors and have me fired. And I'm serious because I have to stand before Jesus Christ one day and give an account for how I taught the word of God and Pray for me, because teachers of the word will receive the stricter judgment. And so what we're talking about, even though this may seem a little different than normally what we get on Sunday morning, is essential if we're gonna properly interpret God's word. How many of you guys wanna be Bible-believing Christians? Do you really? How many of you guys want your, your, your faith and practice to be centered on the scriptures? That's what being a Christian's all about. It's not your interpretation, my interpretation. It's just as good, and what do I feel like? No, that leads to apostasy, that leads to heresy, and that leads to cults. And so back to our study, okay? I'm gonna look to interpret that symbol in the context, verses before and after. The second thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask myself, is that symbol anywhere located in the book of Revelation? because expositional constancy tells me that it's gonna have the same definition, that symbol is gonna have the same definition in the same book. The third thing I'm gonna do in using the Bible to interpret the Bible is I'm going to look at other scriptures, other books of the Bible, to help me interpret that figure of speech or symbolic word, especially the book of Daniel. Ladies and gentlemen, the key to correctly interpreting Revelation is you got to know Daniel. Daniel and Revelation parallel one another beautifully. 
So I'm so glad back way back in 2011, I taught through Revelation. I taught through Daniel. I'm so glad that just this past July or August, I taught um, Daniel and end times in, in Haiti. And I'm so excited to do this again in a deeper way in 2017. But it's going to be the Bible interpreting the Bible. You're not gonna just get my idea about something. And so when you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, you discover that the beast, remember Revelation 13, one? The beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns? You discover that the beast is a coming, literal, global, political ruler, otherwise known as the Antichrist. A literal guy. You see, behind the, allegor- the, the, um, behind the figure of speech is a literal truth. You find out, as you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, that the 10 horns are 10 kingdoms that are going to align under this man's leadership. You say, well, how do you know that? Daniel chapter seven spells it out clearly. It's by using the scripture to interpret the scripture. And so, another great example of literal truth behind figures of speech, check out Revelation 19.20. The beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet, and these two were thrown alive into a what? Okay, do you see the figures of speech? Do you see the symbolic words there? Beast, not a a, a literal Godzilla-like creature. No, there's a literal truth behind beast. A false prophet, and a lake of fire. Okay, and so when you look at Revelation 19.20, those who interpret Revelation allegorically, here's, here's what they say. Well, you gotta understand, you know, that the, the plain sense, you know, you gotta go to a secondary, more profound spiritual sense. There's a hidden meaning behind this plain sense. But what's the hidden meaning? You know, Mr. Pastor, who's interpreting the Bible allegorically. Well, All John is saying is he's talking about the age-long battle between the forces of good and evil. There's not a literal antichrist coming. You see how important it is that we get these foundational principles right up front before we kick off next week? And so the literal method of interpretation says this. Well, no, behind beast, as I said, there's a literal coming global leader who's gonna rule over the world. And at the end of the tribulation, he's gonna be captured with a false prophet. That's his literal, that's a literal guy, religious counterpart, who, by the way, does amazing miracles. Which, by the way, quick side note, just because someone does a miracle doesn't mean they're from God. That's not the test of orthodoxy. Somebody does a miraculous sign, it doesn't mean they're from God. The test of their orthodoxy is do they believe the Bible's the word of God and are they pointing you to Jesus Christ, the son of God? The false prophet doesn't do that. And so, by the way, there'll be strong delusion given in the last days and we're, gonna, we're talking about tens of millions of people are gonna listen to this false prophet and they're gonna worship this beast. And so what's gonna happen because they deceived so many people is at the end of time, at the end of the tribulation, they're gonna be thrown in a figure of speech here, a lake of fire. Well, behind the, the, the figure of speech is a literal truth. They will be damned forever. And by the way, they're not annihilated. Your soul inside of you lives forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. And so they'll be awake forever in conscious torment, and it'll never end. You say, that disturbs me, pastor. Well. Listen, we just teach the word of God, right? right? And we send out warnings to people. That's my job as a pastor. It's not every Sunday to get up here and give you a a lighthearted, topical, motivational speech to make you feel good. That's not my, my job. My job is to teach the scriptures and warn you about these essential truths. And so, if we're gonna correctly understand Revelation, Number two, if you're taking notes, we should accept a literal 1,000 year of reign of Christ in the future. Now, now this is huge. 
I am so glad that 30 years ago in Bible college, and yeah, I'm, I'm getting old, I am so glad that I took eschatology at my Bible college, and I'm so glad they, they gave me a book called Things to Come. It's in, the, it's in the cafe library by Dwight Pentecost, and I'm so glad I read this dictionary, every single word of it, 30 years ago, because he starts the whole book, a huge section of the book, talking about the literal method of interpretation versus the allegorical method of interpretation. Don't be duped. Okay, and so right here, when it comes to the millennium, you have a group of people that use the allegorical method of interpretation, and what do they say? There's no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ in the future. And because they don't know what's at stake, they try to be funny sometimes. And they stand before crowds of people and they say, I'm not a premillennialist, I'm not a postmillennialist, and I'm not an amillennialist. I'm a panmillennialist because it's all gonna pan out in the end. Ha, 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 ha. And they completely ignore the book of Revelation and they never teach it to their congregations. It's not right. It's not a laughing matter. What's at stake here is God's character. Do you believe God's a promise keeper or a promise breaker? He's a promise keeper. And so among evangelicals, um, there's lots of different positions on when the rapture occurs. Listen, that issue is, is nowhere near as important as the issue I'm talking about right now, the millennium. And so there's three different positions that Christians take concerning the millennium. But before we do that, let, let me share Revelation 20, verse six with you so you know what I'm talking about if you're new to the Bible. John said, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's the one you wanna be in, by the way. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for, with him for how long? In Latin, it's the word milli, from where we get our English word millennium, millianum, millennium. Okay, and so there's three different positions that Christians take concerning the millennium. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. It's called the post-millennial view. And that says, proponents of this position say, the second coming of Christ is after the millennium. By the way, I get these definitions straight out of the Ryrie Study Bible, which is an awesome study Bible, also available in our cafe. I'm always wanting to point you to solid men of God who have a life track record of rightly dividing the word of truth, who have no scandals in their lives, who live for the Lord. And so the post-millennial view is the second coming of Christ is after the millennium. And so this view teaches that the church's influence, so local churches like ours and other churches around the world, that our influence for good is gonna eventually spread throughout the entire world until we Christianize the world. And that our influence for good is gonna spread across the entire world and it's gonna so change everybody that that's gonna culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the church is bringing in the millennium. And by the way, some post-millennialists say it's a literal thousand years and then Christ comes. Others say they spiritualize the text and they say, no, a thousand years, that's just an undetermined lengthy period of time. But the key is that the church is like leaven. And so the parable of the leaven, you have this woman and she hides leaven in three measures of flour until it leavens the entire lump. And so the church's influence for good is going to be hidden in the world, but it's gonna expand until the whole world is Christianized. That's how they interpret the parable of the leaven. There's a problem with that. 90% of the time the word leaven is used in the scripture, it's talking about evil has nothing to do with us Christianizing the world. It has everything to do, like the wheat and the tares parable, that within the church, there's saved people and there's lost people. There's true prophets and there's false prophets. 
There's solid doctrine and there's false doctrine. And Jesus said that false doctrine is gonna spread throughout the global church. It's already happened. Oh, but, but the church is like a mustard seed and it's gonna grow into a mustard plant. 12 foot tall in, in ancient days. And, 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 and all the birds of the air are gonna come and make their nests in the tree. Isn't that great? The church is gonna attract all these birds. Well, there's a problem with that interpretation. In scripture, the birds of the air are evil. Did you ever hear the parable of the sower? And the birds come and the sower sows the seed and the bird takes the seed away. What does that bird, according to Jesus, signify? Satan. It's not talking about us spreading our good influence across the world and Christianizing the world. It's talking about false doctrine and false prophets spreading throughout the church. So be careful how you handle the word of God. And so is it really true that we're gonna Christianize the world, that things are gonna get better and better? Is that what the Bible teaches? Listen to this. 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Is that not our culture or what? You know what our culture is? I'm the center of the universe and everybody revolves around me and you better make me happy. It's all about me, myself, and I, right? Lovers of self in the last days. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen without, with, with, with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How many millions of Christians got blasted last night on New Year's Eve? And because they have a hangover this morning, they can't even get up and come to church. Why, because they love pleasure more than they love God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Talking about in the last days. By the way, so glad you came to church today so I could encourage you, right? But, but listen, that's the truth. Things are not gonna get better, things are gonna get worse. And so you gotta know that and you gotta be ready. Strong in your faith, growing in the scriptures, growing in a relationship with Christ and praying. Men of God gotta start standing up and being the spiritual leaders of their home. Guys, stop letting your wives wake you up and drag you to church. You're the spiritual leader of your home, not her. So hey, 2017, January 1st, why don't you repent? Why don't you start being the spiritual leader of your home? Why don't you start leading your wife in prayer? Why don't you be the first one to wake up on Sunday morning and bring her to church every single Sunday in 2017? Why don't you stand up and be the man God's called you to be? That's what the Bible says. So many men are just pulled around by their wives, okay. Where's your heart? Where's your courage? Where's your love for God? I forgot where I was. <laughs> I have no idea where I am. All right, the second position. Equally as troubling, I believe more troubling than the first. It's the amillennial view. And by the way, this is what most Christians believe right here. The amillennial view is that the present state of the righteous in heaven is the millennium. Didn't you know that? There's no earthly millennium. The prefix ah meaning no. Now what troubles me about this position is that those who hold the ah millennial position deny a literal thousand year reign of Christ. Now if you're with me here, say amen. Listen to this. By denying a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth, they are denying God's promises made to Israel. That's a big deal. Remember we said God's character's on the line? 
You remember how we talked about God's a promise keeper or a promise breaker? Have you ever read the prophets, major and minor prophets in your devotions? Pages and pages and pages of a kingdom on this earth promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you know what the amillennialist conveniently does? He says, well, no, Israel rejected Jesus, so all her promises are fulfilled in us as the church. Careful. I would not want to have that position and stand before the Lord someday. You see, two weeks ago, we studied God's promise to David that one of his descendants would rule forever. You remember that study three weeks ago? 2 Samuel 7. And that was promised in the Old Testament. Guess what? It was reestablished in your New Testament. Christian, when Gabriel came to Mary and said in, in um, Luke chapter one, verse 33, Speaking about Jesus, her son, he will reign over the house of who forever? What's another name for Jacob? Israel. We don't have the right to use an allegorical method of, trans, of, of interpretation and say, well, it's not really talking about the Israel. It's gonna be fulfilled in us as the church. Where do you get that from? It's not true. And so the truth is Jesus is coming back and he's gonna reign over Israel and God's gonna fulfill all his promises to Israel. God has a wonderful plan for the nation of Israel and the church has not replaced Israel. Not at all. And so sadly, those who hold the amillennial position, most Christians, listen to this, many Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, and sadly, because I respect these guys, most Reformed churches. I respect the Reformed preachers because they're known for expository teaching and preaching, what I'm doing starting tomorrow. That's why I respect these guys. But most Reformed churches are amillennial. Here's why. Because the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and the Anglicans and um, the Lutherans and the, 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 the Reforms, uh, the Reformed churches were heavily influenced by St. Augustine, fourth century Christian philosopher, said a lot of great things, wrote amazing books, wrote a book called The City of God, a thousand pages, but he changed his position on the millennium. Augustine believed in a literal thousand year reign of Christ, but somewhere along the line, he changed his position and he wrote in The City of God, that it's an amillennial deal, that there's not a literal thousand year reign of Christ over the Jews and over the world. The, 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 the millennium is spiritualized. It's Christ's reign in heaven. And so here, here's what I know, that amillennialists, whether they know it or not, what they're saying to Israel is this. God is finished with you as a nation and we are the recipients of your promises. And let me just say this. It's a short step from being amillennial and being anti-Semitic. And I am not willing to take that step. The only position that upholds God's promises to Israel is the pre-millennial position, and here's how you define the pre-millennial position, and obviously this is what we are. The second coming of Christ will occur before the millennium. By the way, when you read the plain intention of John, Revelation 19, Jesus comes back. Revelation 20, he sets up a thousand year reign on, on the earth. It's just right there. And so the premillennial view says that after the tribulation period, seven year period, I'll explain all that later, Jesus Christ is coming back all the way to the earth. He's gonna set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and he's going to set up his kingdom and reign over Israel and over the world, literally. Because that's what the Bible says over and over and over again. Now, we're running out of time, but you gotta get this. This is the most important part of the whole message right here. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor Mike, that this is the right position? Here's a slam dunk proof for you because the premillennial position is the only position that has a consistent hermeneutic. What? Remember hermeneutics. 
It's the study of the, the, the branch of learning that has to do with proper biblical interpretation. Okay, so the post-millennial view, the amillennial view, they have a dual hermeneutic. The premillennial view has a consistent hermeneutic, which means this. All the prophecies, scores and scores of prophecies about Christ's first coming. Okay, you guys know this. In the Old Testament, all these, this is why we believe what we believe. It's not a fairy tale. The scores of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ coming the first time, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, et cetera, et cetera. Here's my question you can answer out loud. Were they literally fulfilled, yes or no? Yeah. And so why in the world do we change our hermeneutic and say, yeah, but all the prophecies about his second coming are not gonna be literally uh, fulfilled concerning Israel, just allegorically. What are we doing to God's word? Let me give you an example. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. From Psalm 22, if you're new to the Bible, this is a thousand years before Christ. These are prophecies about his first coming. Listen to the word of God. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Was that prophecy 1000 BC literally fulfilled in history, yes or no? Yeah. Um, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Was that literally fulfilled a thousand years later at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Yeah. So why do we change our hermeneutic about the verses about his second coming? So what are the verses about his second coming? There's thousands. Let me just read a few to you. Zechariah 14. God says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. By the way, in the end days, everybody hates Israel. Sound familiar? Do you think the international community right now does not like Israel? They don't like Israel. The UN does not like Israel. Look at the stupid resolution they just made last week against Israel. Pastor, you said stupid. Yes, I said stupid. It's dumb. It's wrong. It's anti-Semitic. It's not right. But it's happening just like he said it would happen. And so I'm gonna gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Guess what? That's gonna be literally fulfilled. We're going to Israel in March and I'm gonna stand on the Mount of Olives and I'm gonna open my Bible and I'm gonna share a devotion from the mountain that's gonna split in two when Jesus comes back. And so on that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea. That's the Dead Sea. Half of them to the Western Sea. That's the Mediterranean. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Everybody say earth. Earth. Listen, it's not just a heavenly reign of Christ. He's gonna reign on the earth. That will be literally fulfilled, no matter what the amillennialists say. And then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And so in the thousand-year literal millennium reign of Christ, those who survived the tribulation, those who are called the sheep in Matthew 25 who treated Israel right and took care of them during that seven years, they're gonna enter into the kingdom, a literal kingdom, and they're gonna make pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem, and they're gonna keep the Jewish feast of booths, literally. And so far be it from any Bible interpreter to wipe all that away. And so, when Jesus comes back, here's the biggest thing, the second coming 
prophecies will be fulfilled, which means that Israel will fully enjoy the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. Check out the Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham 4,000 years ago, I'm gonna give you these four things, Abraham, and these are an everlasting covenant. Again, help me out. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? I will, everybody say I will. Make your descendants a great nation. That's the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will, everybody say I will. Be God to your descendants. Here's the controversial one. I will, everybody say I will. Give you the land of Canaan to, to your descendants. It's their land, stop messing with their land. And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the Jewish Messiah. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in one person alone. That's Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus returns to rescue Israel at the Battle of Armageddon, we'll see this later on when we get to Revelation 19. The Jews in Israel who were alive at that time are gonna look up and they're gonna see the one that they pierced. It's an old prophecy in Zechariah. They're gonna see and they're gonna realize that Jesus was our Messiah all along. And then Romans eleven twenty six: all Israel will be saved. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying all Jews from all times will be saved. That's not the point here. It's the Jews who are alive at the second coming of Christ, recognize him, put faith in him as their Messiah. All Israel will be saved. So right now, there's a dispute over what are the borders of Israel? What should they, let's take them back to the 1967 borders so they can't defend themselves anymore. And there's this, all this dispute about what should the borders of Israel be? Let me tell you something, when Jesus Christ comes back, that dispute will be over forever because he will enforce the borders that God promised to Abraham 4,000 years ago that stretched from the Nile all the way north to the Euphrates. It's their land. It's an everlasting covenant, and it requires a literal reign of Jesus Christ. And so if we're gonna correctly understand Revelation, here's your last point. We should accept the outline given to us by Jesus. Where's that outline? It's in verse 19. Jesus says, write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. And so from that verse, we have a divine outline that we're gonna follow here at Calvary PSL starting next week. And here's what the outline looks like. In chapters one, it's things past. Chapters two and three, things present. In chapters four through 22, things to come. And so in chapter one, John has this amazing experience with the resurrected Christ. And in verse 19, Jesus says, write the things that are in the past, that you experienced, you just had with me. Chapters two and three are seven letters to seven real churches in the first century of Asia Minor. Because we're a local church, I love that part of Revelation because we get great application for our church today. And then the things to come, that's in the future. That means the future of 2017 or beyond. No one knows the day or the hour, but it's things to come. It's all about how this world, as we know it, will one day end. And so as I close, I've got some really, really good news for all of you. And the good news is this, that life on this sin-sick, secular, cursed world will not go on indefinitely that a new heavens and a new earth is coming where only righteousness dwells. But before that new heavens and that new earth comes, there will be a literal kingdom on this earth. And Jesus is gonna restore things back to the Garden of Eden days. And there's gonna be righteousness and peace and love and joy that's gonna reign in the earth because the Prince of Peace is gonna reign on the earth. Are you looking forward to that day? I am. I am. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. 
you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.